So welcome everyone to another episode of Dialectic. We have Professor Chacon here with us. She is the co-author of the Immigration Law Textbook, Immigration Law and Social Justice, and the co-author of a forthcoming book on the impact of shifting immigration policies on immigrant communities and organizations in Southern California from 2014 to 2017. She's written articles, book chapters, essays on immigration, criminal law, constitutional law, and citizenship issues. And she was also previously a professor here at UCLA Law. While here, she was a core faculty member of both the Critical Race Studies Program and the Center for Immigration Law and Policy, as well as an affiliated faculty member of the Promise Institute for Human Rights and the Public Interest Law Program. Two of us had the pleasure of taking our foundational con law course with her, and that was a memorable experience. And we echo the feelings of any students who adore Professor Chacon. So welcome to Dialectic. We're so happy to have you, Professor Chacon. Yay. Thank you. It's so good to see you all. I miss you. And I'm really happy to be back with you, at least in this way, in this space. Yeah, see, when we brought you into the CRS office, so yeah. you can feel right, <laughs> I feel right at home. <laughs> So we're just going to get started with some personal legal scholarship questions. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what drew you to the legal world and further into legal scholarship? So I am, I guess I would start with sort of where I'm from. I grew up on the U.S.-Mexico border in El Paso um, in a sort of mixed household. Um, And I think that experience uh, really sort of shapes who I am and and sort of drove my interest. So when I went off to college, um, I I thought sort of based on my childhood and growing up in the border region that I was interested in international law. I kind of thought that was the umbrella under which my interests um, fit um, because I was interested in the way that nations related to one another, the way that things and people moved across borders, the regulation of those things. And I, I guess I thought those were international law problems. Um, and uh, so I, I studied um, international relations as an undergraduate um, with an emphasis on Latin America. Um, and I kind of struggled at, as I was nearing the time to decide what about whether to go to graduate school or whether to go to law school. But, um, you know, but I, like, like so many of us, I had parents who were like, do the thing that make you some money and, <laughs> and go to law school. So that is sort of what I wound up doing. So I took the, the law school route and, and entered there again, thinking that I would um, work in international law. And that's sort of how I started. And then it was really the summer after my first year, I spent some time in Guatemala and in Chile. And, and during that experience sort of became exposed to the many ways that criminal legal regimes had been abused. And I started to think about that um, sort of feature of law also as a feature of law in the United States, one that we didn't always frame in the same way, but but one that seemed to be doing much of the same work. And then the year I came back to law school, I was in the immigration clinic. So I saw this sort of interconnection between what was happening in migration control spaces um, and criminal law control spaces and the ways that the same populations um, seem to be impacted negatively by both of these systems. And so that really sort of shifted my interest. And I started to think about um, my interests as being questions of migration control, um, including domestic migration control and criminal law and procedures and the overlaps there um, and the way that these things constitute um, race and reinforce racial racial hierarchies. Um, So critical race studies was obviously pretty important in that kind of window in time to helping to shape how I was thinking about these questions. Um, And that's really when I started to think I I would be interested in teaching. Um, And 
um, kind of teaching law in these spaces, but I had found my legal education so frustrating and alienating in a lot of ways <laughs> that I wasn't really sure that space was for me. So it, it took a sort of multi-year journey um, to come back around to teaching, but that, um, but I did find my way back and I found my way back to asking the kinds of questions that I was interested in asking and, and doing so with people um, in the academy who were interested in asking them in similar ways. So, so it's, I found spaces of comfort in what it can sometimes feel like a not comfortable um, <laughs> uh, space. I really appreciate that you said the alienating part, because I think as law students, we have felt very disconnected or distant from what we want to do. So it's very helpful to kind of hear that there's a way to come back and find those spaces that work after doing this type of work. Yeah. Um, so I guess kind of touching on what you said about you kind of stepped away from teaching for a little bit. You were from my, from what I recall from a previous conversation, you did practice for a little bit, right? Yeah. So I, I went into big law actually. So I was, I kind of had this moment of not really knowing what I wanted to do um, and really thinking that I might leave the law entirely. And so I had a significant amount of student debt at that point in time, as, as I imagine many of you do. Um, I had largely you know, funded my own legal education um, through debt. Um, and so I was leaving with a lot of loans and I had a clerkship lined up. Um, and so I was going into my clerkship really not sure, you kind of really feeling like I wasn't sure I wanted to practice law at all, really not sure what my next step was. And so I, I took a firm job in part because I thought, well, this way I can at least pay off my debt while I, while I figure out what to do with this degree. And I wound up loving my clerkship for a lot of reasons. I, I clerked for Judge Sidney Thomas on the Ninth Circuit. He's a lovely person. Um, there was a lot of interesting immigration law um, there were a lot of interesting immigration law questions that were coming up into the courts at that time as a consequence of the kind of horrific 1996 um, immigration law changes, including a lot of jurisdiction stripping provisions that the court um, was reviewing at that point in time. So, so that was really exciting. And then I <laughs> went over into law practice where I essentially, I think I, I decided I was going to get two things out of it. Um, and I did. So one thing was obviously repay debt. So I did not <laughs> live extravagantly. Uh, I lived very frugally and I paid back my debt in four years, um, largely sort of writing over all of my big bonus checks to loan repayment. Um, and so when I announced that I was quitting <laughs> one of the partners, I said, well, I paid off my loans and I'll be leaving now. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I haven't paid off my loans. And I, so I, one thing I say to people is if you're serious about paying off your loans, then pay off your loans, right? That if that is the reason you're doing this work, uh, then make that a priority. The second thing I wanted to get out of it um, was really a window on law and power. Um, so I came, I grew up in a border community. I didn't know any lawyers. Um, I didn't know anybody in finance. I didn't know anyone um, in sort of big corporate jobs. Um, and I I had a good sense from the outside that this these places mattered in terms of how uh, power flowed and how um how the world was structured, um, including the legal world. And so I tried to really use my time at the firm um, to learn about those things. How do these things work? How do these relationships work? How does, uh, how does power work? How do people sort of move in and out of policymaking and regulatory spaces and into private practice in service of, um, you know, in service of wealthy clients? Like how, how do those relationships work and flow? So I learned a lot from that, but I also learned, and I say this to law students, that it's really hard to sort of carve yourself out as neutral spectator um, when you are engaged uh, in, you know, for 
huge numbers of hours every week in this work. You become a part of that work. And there's only so much criticality and distance um, that you can maintain um, from that. So when people ask me, would you recommend I do this? I say, no, I, <laughs> I feel like there were critical aspects of my identity that were malformed in this in that period that it spent me a lot of time to sort of reconstitute as I left it. And I really thought I would be untouched because I thought I was a centered you know, kind, humane, decent person. But I think there's really no way to go through that process and be untouched by it. And I think there's a lot of um, damage that's inflicted by sort of trying to fit yourself into that mode. So if you have to do it to pay back debt, I totally get it. I, <laughs> I did it myself. But I also think it is really important to sort of recognize the the harms that it inflicts and the ways that it does sort of uh, force you into um modes of being um, and seeing the world that uh, may not be compatible with who you are. Mm. So do you feel that coming back into scholarship out of school allowed you to kind of get re reconnected to advocacy in the ways that you imagined? Yeah, I think it did. Um, I think I, I found it as I found it to be a freeing path. Uh, and I think the reason for that, there were kind of two important reasons. One is I only wanted to do this if it could be a freeing path. I was not interested in sort of replicating my law school experience and <laughs> either for myself or for my students. I did that I didn't see that as the way that I wanted to spend my life. So I wanted to um, engage in this work in a way that um, at least in some modest way kind of sought to transform it. And I saw that there was more space to do that, certainly in the legal academy than in legal practice, um, at, or big firm practice anyway, right, that I would have some intellectual space to carve out and, and possibly be able to sort of forge a different path. Um, and I think the second thing that was really important to that was finding mentors within the academy um, who had done this or were doing this, um, because there were people and you have some of them at your law school, right? People like Cheryl Harris, people like Devin Carbato, people like Kimberly Crenshaw, um, people at UC Davis when I started like Bill Hing and Kevin Johnson, right? People who um, were uncomfortable fits in the, in the legal academy in some ways, because they were really pushing on the boundaries of what it meant to be a legal academic and what legal um, academic work could do. And so I saw what they were doing and I said, well, you know, I, I'm not them, right? <laughs> um, I, I don't aspire to be as great as them, but I can at least see that there is a way to do this work. Unlike I think the work I was doing in a big law firm, right? There was ways to do that. There were ways to do this work um, that did have the potential to be transformative. There were examples um, that I could point to of people doing that work. Um, and that, that I think um, helped me to know that it was possible. Well, Professor Chacon, we um, group you in that group. So um, <laughs> that's a little fire over here. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think that's also super interesting because of the space that critical race studies is in right now and the conversations that are happening around it. But to pull away from that, because I know that can kind of be a little bit heavier too, what does it mean to kind of center humans, right? Center our stories, center our experiences and do this type of scholarship without objectifying ourselves or objectifying our communities. Um, kind of touching on what you were saying earlier about you get distant and it's hard not to, you can't come out unscathed, but how do you recenter those stories without making it kind of, yeah, objectifying? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And it's one that I, 
I sort of struggle with constantly. And or maybe I didn't struggle with it enough actually earlier on in my career and I struggle with it more now. So I think one way I'll answer it is the kind of the the happy way, which is to say that I came into this work in part because I saw massive dehumanization in legal academic literature and I thought this just does not it doesn't actually comport with my vision of reality, right? Like I I grew up in a space that is sort of treated and written about as pathological and remote um, and uh, and in need of sort of <laughs> extreme forms of governance, right? When you think about the way the border is written about and uh, talked about in policy circles and in a lot of the classic legal academic literature, this sort of notion of the need to exert, uh, you know, massive state control in these spaces and any sort of incursions upon that is like, disasters that need to be like stamped out. And so that just wasn't how I lived, right? (laughs) People move fluidly across the borders. People have families and lives across the borders, economic enterprises that cross borders. um, And none of that sort of fit within the sort of framework that I was seeing reproduced in literature. And so so the the sort of easy answer to your question is my lived experience didn't reflect those things. And so by sort of trying to inject my lived experience into legal writing, I felt like I could humanize that space, right? And, and remain true to what is inherently human <laughs> about the, the legal subjects um, that are under discussion. The harder answer though, is that I, I really do struggle and I struggle more every day with the idea that, you know, in some ways I make my living off of writing about um, these problematized spaces and problematized peoples and movements, right? Um, and, and and I get to sort of operate from a point of privilege as critic and, and, and armchair scholar, while people sort of are struggling in that space in very painful and sometimes deadly ways every day. Right. And so what am you know, what am I doing when I academicize? I don't that's I don't think that's a word, but when I <laughs> I make academic these questions uh, of life and death, when I make academic these questions of survival. Um, that I think is a harder question. And I think what I've kind of the way that I've made peace with it is that I, I know that we're all in some ways implicated in these structures of oppression. And so then you have to, you are implicated, right? You just are. Um, and so then you just have to decide how are you, how you, how are you going to align yourself within those structures? Are you going to align yourself comfortably with power? Um, or are you going to situate yourself as a critic of power who is comfortable with the idea that you may ultimately dismantle the system that gives you your comfort and privilege? And so that's, that's sort of where I have had to situate myself. Um, but I recognize there's a certain hypocrisy and, and, and luxury that's attached to the position that I'm in. Yeah. Wow, that's um, very insightful because I think it is a privileged position for even us to be in law school at a T14 school. So thinking about how we are still implicated is the interesting thing to continuously come back to and revisit. And I think it's a really interesting question for women of color too, right? Because you're, I often would think, well, I, you know, I am, you know, I am the person who's sort of on the receiving end of a lot of the junk, right, that the system is producing. And yet, right, and and yet, I also have really benefited from structures of privilege within that system. And it's sometimes really easy for me to align myself with power or to not be sufficiently critical because I sort of um, get the pass, right? Um, and so I think it's, it's really important um, for women of color um, and someone like me who can be white passing in certain spaces, particularly to be acutely aware of the ways that power might be mobilized for me um, as well as against me. That is 
really, yeah. Thank you, Professor Chacon. We appreciate that insight there. I think that actually brings us to a really great transition into specific narratives and experiences around Andaki queerness and Andaki queer bodies. So I know Marlon had a couple of questions she wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, so sort of like the overarching theme of my questions are going to be on Andaka queerness, uh, citizenship, and humanizing persons through legal academy. So uh, we know that a lot of your scholarship uh, centers on citizenship issues. And we were just uh, wondering what your thoughts or how do you see undocumented queer slash undocumented people within your scholarship? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think it's one that sort of gets to the way that my thinking has changed over the years when I think about these issues. I think, and this is sort of the, the privilege of my job is often learning from people who are activists in um, in these spaces who are trying to change law and change the way that the uh, laws are operating. So um, as I was kind of doing my immigration work and, you know, kind of critiquing immigration law, um, I was working at kind of at the same time that um, there was a lot of active youth organizing around questions of citizenship and belonging and um, inclusion, right? So massive marches, um, mobilizations around the DREAM Act, right? A, a lot of uh, stuff was happening in that space, right? As I'm kind of writing in parallel, looking particularly at the criminal, the criminalized um, immigration enforcement structure. Um, and what I sort of got to see um, in that space was how much of the organizing and activism was sort of motivated by this category questioning, right? Like calling into question things that we, categories that we take for granted, right? Citizen and non-citizen, immigrant and citizen, right? These, these are sort of firm categories that purportedly have defined meanings that can't be challenged, right? And I think a lot of what the activism was doing was trying to define or trying to push against those categories, right? You can belong and you can sort of be a citizen without being a citizen, right? Without having sort of formal legal citizenship, troubling those lines between uh, belonging and citizenship. And I think that a lot of the people who are sort of on the front lines of troubling those categories were also people who are queer, who are troubling gender categories, right? Calling into question traditional gender roles, calling into question the boxes that people are put into around their gender identity and sexual orientation, and really pushing and showing the, the ways that the categories can find. The categories can find people in ways that are uh, carceral and the categories also reproduce uh, themselves in ways that are hierarchical. Um, so in, this, in the same way that kind of troubling the citizenship boundary was important, troubling the gender boundary was important. And you see this in uh, the work of artists like Julio Salgado, who sort of call, you know, kind of you combines the, you know, the, the undocu-queer and the undocumented and right, is, is challenging sort of also narratives of, of um, respectability and, and uh, narratives of merit, right? All of these things get called into question. So I think for me, that was really transformational, seeing that work and thinking about the ways in which my own work um, prior to that time had tendencies that could reproduce um, clean categories, right? It was about sort of legal reform and how do you reform legal categories without really questioning the categories and where they came from. And I think the undocuqueer movement really sort of, and, and the kind of undocuqueer people within movement spaces really helped me to see the way in which 
clinging to those categories um, reproduces them. Um, and that kind of truly transformational legal change, truly transformational social change actually requires you to question the categories that you're so used to working in. Yeah, well, thank you. That was very insightful. And also thinking about that same, in that same line, um, what are some of the tools that you use to sort of humanize people who are often minimized, criminalized, and invisibilized, or as, you know, we might say marginalized uh, people? So what are some tools that you incorporate in your legal scholarship or maybe just broadly? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I, one tool that I kind of turned to as as part of this sort of overall shift in the way I was doing my work was um, I started to do interviews, started to do empirical work, started to sort of try to get a better sense of where pe where people's thinking was. And, and he, by interviews, I mean people who are system affected, right? Um, whether that be kind of system impacted by the criminal legal system or the immigration enforcement system, um, people who are sort of kept outside of kind of regularizing legal status by law, and also people who um, were sort of insiders in the sense that they were citizens or had gained DACA status or what kind of half insiders, right? Um, but who were still sort of um, working to, to, to move the law, right? And to move and to move society um, to kind of generate systems of fuller inclusion. Um, and so that was part of the process, right? I, so this sort of recognition that I have a particular set of experiences that come from my childhood on the US-Mexico border in an increasingly militarized space, but that is not the universal migrant experience, right? It's not, and and I don't actually have a migrant experience, right? My, I'm a, my father was the immigrant in the family, right? So I, and we live sort of in, in a very binational community, but that's not the same um, as everybody's experience. And so part of, part of sort of keeping being the human central in my work has been to try to expand conversations and listen more and, and give more space, um, including space in my writing, to um, what other people are thinking uh, about these problems. So that's that's a piece of it. Um, I think the other piece of it, though, is just, you know, remembering that you are, in fact, human. <laughs> so and this is this can be, I think, really hard, especially for people who don't come from you know, the families of lawyers or the, you know, third generation legal academics, right? Um, there is a sort of a desire to sort of pretend to be um, the ideal scholar. And the ideal scholar has always been, you know, seen as uh, Im impartial, um, you know, completely neutral and outside of the problems that that person is studying. And I think we all... <laughs> Yes, as critical people sort of recognize the flaws in that mold. But I think um, for, for me, it was really important to um, sort of uh, deconstruct that. Um, and I think critical race studies is a very useful tool for helping to deconstruct that notion of neutrality. But there's still always, I think, this tendency to want to um, mimic um, the kind of the work of the ideal legal scholar, um, and that can have a dehumanizing effect. And so fighting against that tendency, making sure to sort of be looking for that in my own work, opening up my uh, eyes to sort of what other people were doing, and getting curious about not just what people were writing and thinking about stuff, but what people are living um, in the world, um, and trying to make sure that that's um, what's driving the work more than anything else. Right. And, you know, there's obviously been more uh, legal scholarship um, that deals with undocumented queer issues, um, but there's still so much more room um, for 
you know, different perspectives and just different stories to be told and different things to be problematized. Um, so what do you think are some of the challenges um, uh, or why is there a lack of undocu queer uh, legal scholarship or so much room or what are the challenges in including undocu queer narratives? And then why do you think uh, legal scholars uh, aren't as, you know, telling the stories or doing, uh, so, I don't know, just sort of talk, talk into that would be great. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a wonderful question. I think you are spot on that there's just not very much work in this space, and that there's tons of <laughs> there's tons of room um, to to work in this space. And so, um, so why isn't there very much? I mean, I think in some ways the question um, sort of points to who are the people who are producing legal scholarship, and you know, there just aren't that many uh, undocu queer people in the legal academy. Like, really, probably you know, a handful, maybe. Maybe. Right. Um, and, you know, and so that means that th these are voices that are just absent from the, the, the legal academy. Right. And that's part of the issue. Right. So 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 part of the problem is one of sort of diversifying who's coming in. Right. Who's teaching who's writing, who's given the resources and the time and the space to do this work. Um, and so that's a process um, that I think is is underway. Um, I also, you know, I think in some ways legal academics are always about a, a few weeks, months or years behind what other scholars are doing. So where we're seeing sort of transformations, I think in sociology, there's a lot more attention to these kinds of questions. I think we see a lot more attention uh, to these kinds of questions um, in history now with sort of um, increased focus on, um, on kind of uh, histories of gender categories and ways that different peoples um, globally have sort of treated these questions and the ways that Western imperialism has uh, stultified these questions and, and kind of thinking about creative ways to reopening them. Um, so I think there is scholarship out there, but not reflected really in law. And I think it's the push to the simple and the push to the having the clean rules um, that, that in some ways resists um, the very lessons um, that we see um, being developed, the kind of category-defying questions um, that uh, undocu-queer scholarship uh, forces us to engage with. Um, so I think that's why it's uh, slow. And, you know, and I'll, you know, I, I will also say, I think it's partly a product, if you think about sort of my generation, or certainly people older than me, and how we were educated, um, Right. So I was thinking about this as I was reading your questions and I was just thinking about like my childhood, right, where um, we, we have a good family friend who uh, died of AIDS, who was a gay man, who no one ever spoke of him. Like it was <laughs> and it was this horrible shame, right? Like the 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 the, the complete uh, silence around the issues of sexuality, uh, of gender um, were, were really quite astounding right and the and the, the the ways that we were all expected to conform to particular gender roles was just sort of self-evident and the things we were reading in school um, were not really pushing <laughs> on those things right they they were sort of accepting of those things and so I think part of what you're seeing is is generational right people who were miseducated right we've profoundly miseducated um and that's not a, that's not to give a pass to say you know like no one should know right no one needs to know um and i think we're not given a pass in part because people in our gener there are people in our generation who are not miseducated who are able to find the sources who are able to find the language right there were people in my hometown um who had better conceptions of these uh 
ideas than I did, right? So it, it's not to give a pass, but it is to say, this is why it's slow, right? Um, because in some cases, you're actually sort of having to unlearn um, whole, <laughs> a whole lot of what you learned in the process of your education. Um, and that is not a fast process. Um, but it's part of why kind of going back to the first part of my answer, part of why it's so important to sort of change who's in the mix, right? To change who's in these spaces. Um, because it's then through conversations with people who are changing uh, the narrative um, that you see the evolution of legal scholarship. And we just don't, we just don't have a lot of that right now. <laughs> the, I guess the final thing I'll say is le law and legal scholarship tends to be really siloed. So there are people writing about uh, gender and sexuality, and there are people uh, writing about, you know, law and econ, right? <laughs> or there, there are people who specialize in, and I think sometimes the, the cross-fertilization that needs to happen um, between these silos doesn't happen, and this is another example of that. Um, so lots of the interesting conversations around gender should be central questions um, to the questions that we're asking about migration, and for some scholars, they are. But I think I certainly have had to sort of be much more intentional in thinking about how does my work implicate gender? How does gender and gender identity implicate um, migration? And I haven't always been good at pushing myself to ask those questions. Um, so it's a process. Yeah, and sort of sort of just to sit here for a little bit more, as um, I'm thinking about how, you know, women of color, how quote unquote marginal scholars and, um, we tend to stick to what we know, or like we tend to stick to our experience um, in contrast to our white counterparts who, you know, get to write about, I don't know, the world, the, the world is their oyster or whatever the saying goes. Right. Um, so I'm just thinking about that right now, as you know, you were talking about in expanding who is writing, which is important, but why do you think that in a sense, it feels, I don't know if you're trying, if you follow where I'm trying to get at, like, why does it feel that uh, scholars of color, especially are so, um, like, the onus is on us, because I, you know, when I, when I wrote my comment for Law Review, I also talked about things that implicated my own identity, mm -hmm. but I don't know, I guess it feels like we have to, and I'm just wondering, why do you think we have that feeling? That's a really great question. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but I think that's a really important um, insight. And um, so I don't know that I have an answer to your question, except I just want to validate the question, right? I think you're right. Like, and part of this may tie back to imposter syndrome. Part of this may tie back to um, presumptions of incompetence, right? So like as a scholar of color, you, you if you kind of have lived what you write about and you know what you know, then at least there's sort of part of your work that is unassailable, um, right? Because <laughs> because who's going to second guess you in, you know, kind of in your own, I mean, that happens too, to be fair. Like <laughs> there, there are plenty of, of scholars who seem perfectly fine uh, second guessing somebody's personal experience. But, <laughs> but I will say, I think that's, it's, it's the kind of comfort and you're right then to sort of step outside of that and to say, you know, I too am going to sort of interrogate class structures. I too am going to interrogate ability, kind of ability, disability, um, uh, sort of frames that have been used on people. I'm going to interrogate sort of gender categories. Um, if, you know, if, if you have sort of all your life gone through life with sort of a, you know, cishet gender identity, right? Like th th that's taking you outside of the space where you get to claim your personal expertise at times, 
but it's important to do that, right? <laughs> it's especially if you sort of live in a full and complex world, right? Where you actually do have, whether you talked about it or not in your childhood, whether you knew it or not, right? Where you did have a community of people who sort of, um, who, who existed um, in ways that challenged um, the the conventional boundaries. And so, yeah, we should be writing about it. And yeah, we should, we should be comfortable taking some risks. I think that's, that's the sort of what, what, what you're ultimately asking, right? Why can't, why can't we freely take the risk um, of engaging in these conversations where we may not have lived experience, but where we certainly have the intellectual capability of engaging them. And yeah, it seems like we should be able to take those risks too. Yeah, well, thank you for answering that. I know it was, I, I was still trying to figure out my thoughts about it, but yeah. And, you know, just one last question on the topic about immigration, which is one of the uh, subjects that you're most known for and sort of how you think immigration relates to queerness and just, yeah. Yeah, so that's a good question. I mean, I one one thing is that I, you know, when I think about what 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 is crimmigration or what has crimmigration come to be, you know, it's it's a label that I sort of resist in some ways because I just don't like the word. Um, <laughs> I, but I but I think as a you know as a technical legal matter, it can stand in for areas where criminal and immigration law sort of um, reinforce each other. Um, criminal consequences uh, or immigration consequences for criminal convictions, those sorts of things, right? Those are, those are kind of, that's immigration law. As thinking about a problem, um, I think my discomfort with immigration, I tried to gesture at in my article on liminal legality is that it sort of it suggests that this is the only space where you have this sort of um, kind of mutually constitutive bordering work of two bodies of law, immigration and criminal law that sort of constitute borders. And I think lots of intersections of law do that. They, you know, law creates borders in all kinds of ways around uh, class status, around gender, et cetera. So I, I, I guess I wanted to, to sort of ask whether this is really unique um, in that way and, and think about the other sort of ways that laws intersect um, to keep people out, to border spaces, to, to um, move people. Um, so I guess if we think about it that way, right, if we think about the problem that way, um, rather than, you know, an area where, where criminal and immigration law intersect, um, then we can see sort of the centrality of queerness to that question, right? Um, the ways that, um, you know, laws around, uh, around a kind of gender and gender identity, um, and sex and sexuality um, wind up uh, keeping some people in and some people out of spaces, um, regulating the ways in which people perform th themselves within spaces, right? Um, and that I think is the, that's the interesting question for me, right? Um, and then one that I try to get at in my work, um, exploring the intersection of criminal and immigration law. And it's not purely a sort of mechanical legal immigration question, right? It's a broader question of bordering practices and exclusionary practices um, that rely on legal categories to do their work. Well, now Nicole has some questions for you, and thank you so much for answering my questions. Sure, they were great questions. They made me think a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you for, for bringing up liminal legality, Professor Chacon, because that's what we wanted to sort of layer on top of what Marlon was thinking and talking about. Um, so we were wondering if you could start by just introducing what liminal legality means in the context of your own scholarship. 
Yeah. So it's not my concept. I borrowed it, obviously. I think there's some early anthropological work that that um, develops the concept, but I'm really borrowing it sort of from the work of um, more contemporary sociologists like Cecilia Mentivar, Lacey Abrego, both of whom are at UCLA, who have um, used the concept uh, uh, to really kind of capture people who have this sort of in-between legal status, not out, not in, sometimes completely out, sometimes brought in. And, and they've done a lot of work, um, Lacey, really looking at um, uh, people with deferred action um, under the Deferred Action for Childhood Rivals program. But before that, um, Cecilia, looking at um, people with temporary protected status, um, and in particular, kind of looking at Central Americans who have you know, now been here for well over two decades, sometimes in TPS, sometimes out of status, and sort of looking at the ways that that uncertain um, and never fully realized um, form of legal protection affects their lives. So she digs deep into sort of how it affects their spirituality, their fam- family formation, economic planning, everything, right? Uh, and I think I was really struck by that work because I think it, you know, it really, to me, again, sort of thinking about my piece, I feel like it sort of encapsulates a lot of what many people experience for a variety of different legal reasons in the United States, that feeling of not fully belonging, the feeling that at any moment you can be sort of left out, um, removed from, uh, you know, isolated away from um, a place where or a space where you think you belong. Um, And so I wanted to sort of think about the legal regimes that that sort of produce that effect on people. So whereas Cecilia is sort of going deep talking to people about what does this experience with the law um, do to you, I was interested in how the law um, goes about producing those kinds of uncertainty and why, um, why we have legal regimes um, that sort of opt toward uh, temporality, opt toward uncertainty, opt toward instability rather than inclusion. Um, so that's, that's sort of what gave birth to that piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your work on liminal legality is full of these like really oppressive rhetorical choices that get us to really question categories. And one of them that we wanted to talk about was using the word banishment instead of deportation or any other word that might be used in similar work. And we're thinking about the word banishment as it relates to undocumented people as a particularly sort of harsh sentence. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think I I I wanted in part I chose the term banishment because you're because I feel like other words have lost meaning through repetition. So deportation, um, even exclusion or removal, right? You say it enough times, and then it sounds banal. Um, but banishment hasn't been used that way, um, and it also has sort of deep historical roots. So we can think about um, you know if we think back to uh, kind of in colonial times um, and the way that in the way that England dealt with individuals who were convicted of crimes, right? Um, and one of the one of the methods that they had, if they if they didn't execute you, they banished you, right? They sent you away to the United States or Australia, right? And so so this was a this was clearly punitive, right? It is intended as a form of punishment. Um, and so I I wanted to I think management for me implies punishment, right? It is it is not distinct from it is actually intended to be punitive. It's not simply a removal, right? Or some <laughs> some sort of technical uh, moving of a person from a place to a place. So I wanted to imbue the the sort of the the term with uh, sort of notions of punishment um, and to highlight that it is um, in fact 
punitive. And so that's why I gravitated to that term. And it's interesting because you do see it um, in some Supreme Court cases scattered throughout history, often in dissents, <laughs> um, where, where uh, you know, where dissenters write about, you know, we're, we're banishing someone from the only home they've ever known. Um, and you often don't see it in, uh, you, you never see it in majority opinions when people talk clinically about things like deportation um, or removal. And so I guess I, this is part of the humanization and part of the being real about what uh, things do. Banishment was important. And then I also think banishment really has kind of their heavy themes of, of people being uh, banished from their families or banished from their neighborhoods uh, for, you know, for a variety of transgressions, including um, sexual transgressions, right, gender transgressions. Um, and so I think there's a potential for that word to really capture what is going on here, which is sort of um, a policing of sort of particular uh, formations of homogenized communities and rejecting people that don't fit um, into the, you know, into that design. Um, so yeah, I think it has a potential to kind of go back to um, Marlon's earlier point, like there's potential here to use this, to kind of explore banishment and liminality in ways that are more robustly sort of capture the many kinds of community banishments um, that have been used um, through the ages. Yeah, it's really, really powerful to think about precarity in the way that Marlon was talking about it. Um, and we also wanted to talk about your use of the word coming out of the shadows as when you talked about receiving kind of administrative grace, um, some temporary deferment of banishment, it might feel like coming out of the shadows. And that was another area that we thought might be kind of symbolic with undocuqueerness and other marginalized genders and identities. Yeah, that's what, so, and there has been some work sort of exploring the parallels between, um, you know, coming out of the shadows in in immigration spaces and coming out um, in in this in spaces of of claiming sexual identity. Um, so I think there there are those parallels there. I guess that's one area. So we're I think we're always entitled to sort of evolve and change and rethink. And and when I think about sort of the use of coming out of the shadows too, I see that it's sort of a reflexive um, echoing of sort of the way we often talk about. Um, you know, in policy circles or in media about what it would mean to have a path to legalization and it would allow people to come out of the shadows. And um, Amada Armenta, who's um, in urban planning there at UCLA, pushed back on this and she's like, people are living in the shadows, <laughs> right? They're like out there living their full lives. They're working, they're going to church, they're going to school, they're committing crimes, they're doing whatever they do, right? As people, right? They do not in the shadows. And, and everybody knows they're there, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so there was some resistance, you know, she's like, I'm, it, it's not a shadowy figure. Like we may pretend we don't see people, um, but it, but it's not a shadow. I mean, so, so I guess I want to, I want to hold on to the idea that people have to conceal aspects of themselves um, in certain spaces, which I think does sort of resonate with the, in the closet, right? Like you move into certain spaces and you have to comport yourself in particular ways and present yourself in particular ways to avoid uh, rejection. So in that sense, I think there are nice parallels, but I also think it is useful to sort of think about, Really, the shadows—the <laughs> shadows—what we're in here when we're talking about immigration status. Um, so I think for for particular individuals in spaces, yes, it has meaning. Societally, I think it might be problematic for us to like to, to sort of gesture to this huge shadow army um, when, in fact, like these are community members who have been with us for all time, and and uh, and we should be talking about them and and uh, and. Uh, and, and theorizing sort of what, you know, kind of what their legal exclusion means in the, in a way that recognizes that. Right. Yeah, that is such a helpful 
political intervention because it's so easy to like fall back into objectification like Rosichi was talking about. Yeah. Um, and we did have this conversation with two undocupied artists recently mm-hmm. for the podcast. Um, Julio Salgado, actually. Yeah, oh. <laughs> yeah, and it was really like life affirming and not not at all shadowy. And I guess like <laughs> as, as like scholarship minded people, we can tend to focus on you know like the legal consequences of things where there are other things that are also happening um that are outside of these categories altogether when we met with that ziri they said that when they were a child they felt more anxious about their sexuality and coming out of that shadow rather than their immigration status and this was in the early 90s and you already talked about how things were different when you grew up than they are now so i guess i'm wondering are things more different now like do you think that the interrelationship between queerness and immigration has changed? That's, that's a good question. So I guess I, I first want to say there is, there's a whole sort of rich sociological literature about immigration status as the master status. And then there's a whole rich sociolo- sociological literature pushing back on that, right? So the master status narrative is that is one that says, you know, people have sort of various aspects of their identity, but ultimately immigration status is sort of the, the one that sort of seems to be doing the most work in terms of driving sort of um, their life chances, choices, et cetera. Um, and, and, and then there's sort of work saying, no, actually, <laughs> not so much. And, and I think, you know, you can really problematize that by sort of injecting um, race and gender and sexual orientation into that. And, and, and I think that is, is the kind of place where your question comes from, right? Um, is it really true that immigration status or worries about removal or deportation or banishment are sort of foremost in your mind when it comes to sort of what uh, worries you or what, what uh, kind of prevents you from uh, fitting in or being included um, uh, uh, or belonging? Um, and so I guess I, I, I would say t- that, that two things are true and they cut in slightly contradictory directions. So one, it is true uh, that immigration status has become more important. And so we we saw, um, you know, I think Lacey Abrego's work um, kind of illustrates the ways that people could sort of get through you know, certainly their kind of elementary school days and their middle school days without really thinking much about their immigration status, in part because Plyler versus Doe says everybody gets an education regardless of immigration status. Immigration status really isn't important to determining who sort of gets to be in school. And school is sort of the only <laughs> the only place you need to go when you're six, right, aside from home. Um, so, so immigration status really isn't hurting you much or conf- confining or constraining you much, where it starts to constrain, where they really start to feel it is at the moment when they want to get a driver's license, um, right? Or apply for college or need a social security to fill out a, a financial aid form, right? These are the moments when immigration status injects itself as salient. And so um, in her work, you can sort of see that it doesn't really matter that much uh, for kids. And then it starts to matter a lot um, as they try to sort of move into these more adult spaces. So I think that's true. And I think it's also changed a bit, right? I think we see more anxiety among children in part because, you know, with with leaders like Trump who are vocally anti-immigrant, people were thinking more about the immigration status of their parents and or themselves, right, um, as a source of worry and concern. So I definitely think that, you know, what's different now versus perhaps the early 90s is we have a pretty robust uh extremely well-funded immigration enforcement machine that runs from the interior and that does pluck people out of their communities, um, you know, sort of 
willy nilly, right? And that creates a generates a form of anxiety around immigration status that might have been less, um, you know, in a, in an era when interior enforcement was pretty episodic, where if you'd been here for a long time, you probably weren't that worried um, that you were going to be removed. So that's changed, I think. So immigration status, I think, is more important. That said, sort of people live intersectional lives, right? Um, and so what kind of is what what is what constitutes the source of exclusion in particular moments or the source of worry in particular moments is going to change depending on context. And you can imagine that for a child um, who doesn't have to show papers to get a job um, and isn't really on the radar screen um, uh, for uh, for removal, um, for the child, the, the bigger fear is going to be about family and community and whether family and community are going to be accepting. Um, and so I, I would think, yes, right. You would, you would be far more worried um, and more concerned in thinking about your sort of day to day um, about questions of sexual orientation, gender identity, right. Those things are going to be far more concerning to you um, than the question of like, you know, whether some federal agent is going to come and scoop people up. So I think, I, I think it is both true that it might be a bit different now in that immigration status is probably more salient to young kids now than it used to be. But it's also the case that for young kids, there are going to be various things um, that are worries um, and concerns when it comes to questions of inclusion and belonging and immigration status is not always going to be at the top of that list. That's interesting. I'm um, hearing about, oh, sorry. No, I was going to say, um, just like noting some of the political developments and the shifts and how that can shift how a group of people, what your priorities or what your thoughts might be around things. Okay. And just curious um, if you think with the July 2021 um, ruling on DACA, if you, what your thoughts are on that and how you kind of, are you like worried about upcoming Supreme Court decisions or what your thoughts around all of this might be? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have, once again, the legality of DACA thrown into question at a moment when Congress could pass a law that would just make all this go away and they can't seem to do it, right? <laughs> the eternal frustration with the legislation. Um, am I worried? Yes, I'm very worried. I, 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 I guess I, I should say I have no faith um, that this Supreme Court is going to be the court that saves DACA. Right. So there's ongoing litigation. There are challenges to the legality of DACA. The administration has responded by engaging in a formal rulemaking process, introducing the, really the most conservative iteration of DACA that one could imagine. Right. It's not it's not imaginative or expansive. It doesn't try to bring new people into DACA. It bifurcates work authorization and the deportation protections so that the Supreme conveniently allowing the Supreme or to strike down the work authorization piece and leaving people with uh, just the um, protection from removal without any sort of means of robustly supporting themselves <laughs> in a capitalist economy, right? So, so there's this, you know, there, there are ways in which the, the rulemaking process alongside what's going on in the courts makes me incredibly uh, fearful. Um, and I'm sad, right, that this is, this is the rule that this administration put forward um, rather than a rule that sort of reflects the full aspirations of people who've been organizing around this issue for decades. So the best we get is sort of a, you know, a half-assed and easily 
um, easily litigated protection. Um, so yeah, I am very worried. And I think Justice Roberts in his uh, regent's decision really signaled where he was, right? He was, he, he was like, you know, go back and do it right. And, you know, and then you can rescind it because and, and kind of tipped his hand to the idea that he really wasn't sure uh, that the work authorization piece of this was, um, was legitimate. And so I think you, you could wind up with a situation where it's fine for the administration to not prioritize certain people for removal. But if that's the sort of extent of DACA, then it's a pretty sad day for people who are, you know, working as doctors, nurses, teachers, right, um, and rely on the work authorization as part of their full and robust humanity, right? Um, so, so I, I am worried, um, and and I think it's really past time uh, for Congress to do something big and bold in this space. And I, I think one thing that I said the other day, talking to different people, was DACA. The DACA thing. This is DACA has now been around for twelve years. Right. When President Obama was elected in 2008, his promise was that in his first year in office, he would enact uh, a legalization package. Imagine if he had fulfilled that promise. Right. When they had uh, the necessary <laughs> majorities in House and Senate. Right. Mm -hmm. Imagine if in 2009 we had had an immigration reform. Bill. Imagine how many citizens uh, there would be now who would be voting and, and act, being activists and engaging these policy issues to move it even further um, in a productive direction. And instead, we are stuck um, with people who are now 12 years into this highly unstable status um, and being sort of uh, the, the subject of these legislative efforts that are really, really not very um, creative or broad or expansive and that require them to then have a waiting period for citizenship as if the last <laughs> 12 years haven't neatly checked that box. So it is really frustrating to watch how little imagination there is in the policy sphere and how little accounting there is for all of the time mm -hmm. that people have, uh, you know, have, have been living um, mm -hmm. with this really, really inadequate um, state of affairs. Yeah. That makes, it makes us want to shift to kind of social media because we're curious about like incentives, like trying to get Congress to do something. What does it mean, right? To be advocates and try to move the needle somewhat. We're curious about, do you engage social media in any way? And if so, like, how do, what does that look like for you? Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess my take on this is if, <laughs> if people who are sort of out there doing good work, come to me and say, you know, will you boost our efforts? Will you, you know, will you talk at our thing? Will you write an op-ed? When that happens, I do what they ask me to do, right? Um, I feel like I am, I am, you know, my, my job is to sort of teach and analyze and to, and to inform the public. Um, but I don't feel like I'm very good at knowing how to inform the public and about what, right? I don't feel like I have a good radar. Um, and I, you know, I'm an academic for a reason. <laughs> so, so I, I don't want to be, and I've seen academics do terrible things um, through social media, right? Like I saw like a whole bunch of really academic -y ac academics talking about like how they didn't like the defund the police slogan. And I was like, who cares what's <laughs> Like, really, who cares? <laughs> so I feel like I, I really rely on folks who are doing the work, um, who are in, in the, on the front lines to tell me when they need me and when I'll be useful. And so when I hear that, I respond. Um, but I don't I sort of go out there on my own, <laughs> using my own complete lack of radar about <laughs> people need. Um, 
to sort of spout my views about like what slogan is good or not. Right. I just, that's, that's not where I do my best work. <laughs> no, we, we need everyone everywhere. Cause I think it's so, it was so interesting in 20, like 2020, the year that a lot of things that, you know, bubble to the surface, just seeing how people use social media to engage others. And so I think it's, it's definitely nice to know, like to appreciate that we all have different parts and roles to play here. And there's a, there's a lot of room to connect and bridge the gap. Someone else can take on the social media. <laughs> yeah, or, to, or just tell me what to do. Right. I mean, yeah. I, just, I, so I would say I'm willing to, I'm willing to sort of use it when I'm, when I know it'll be useful. And when people tell me that it's going to be beneficial, I'm not willing to sort of creatively um, try to shape <laughs> presence. Um, I just, <laughs> I just don't know about that. Um, you know, maybe I'm missing a real opportunity, but I also also feel like people who should be sort of in the public eye are the people who are doing the work um, when it comes to sort of policy mobilization. And so I want to be able to backstop. I want to be able to, you know, write the briefs. I want to be able to um, sort of provide the data. Um, I think those are the things that I do well. I don't need to be the person who's out spinning it, right? I just, that that doesn't need to be me. I think we had... More question. Yeah, I guess on that point, it's, um, you know, when you're talking about the movement and sort of being a mercenary to the movement, um, using kind of like legal academy as just your own lane in which you serve a greater ideal, how can we be careful that when we're in this legal world, we're not shifting our political needle, listening to other people talk? And like, I mean, I've been in law school for two and a half years and my thoughts are just like getting weaker and weaker as every day we swallow this like epistemic violence. How do we stop compromising? Yeah, I think that's that's a that's a hard question. I mean, I guess the good news is I, I feel like you know maybe law school is a hard space to 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 keep that integrity right because you're just you're just immersed. Um, the good news is when you sort of move out of law school, you're immersed with a, a much more diverse group of people, right? So it's not just a bunch of law students and law professors, but you're sort of, you're working in a space where no matter what kind of law you practice, your clients and the people you interact with on a daily basis are going to be, it's just going to be a broader range. So I do feel like there's, <laughs> there's, a, there's a coming out of law school um, moment when you, when you get to sort of re-engage the world. And that helps with some of what you're saying, Nicole, where you feel like you're being sucked into one way of thinking about and crafting the world that's kind of totalizing and, and reductive. Um, so that's that doesn't always have to be sort of where you live in your head. Um, and I think if you're sort of attentive to it now, then you're doing what you need to do, right? You're, you're resisting, um, you're questioning. Um, so that's retaining the space um, for sort of the reopening that I think will happen um, when you move in the world. But it's a it's a great question. It's a great question for me, right? Like I engage law students and law professors all day. Um, that's not <laughs> that's not a healthy sort of uh, ecosystem. <laughs> so uh, so how do I get get out of of there? And I think I'm I'm not always great about it, right? I mean, I think I've really relied on um, sort of. Uh, friend networks and family networks and family has been really important here um, to sort of get me out of my head. Right. Um, and so, you know, when I am home in El Paso and yelling at the TV, um, you know, it's good to be able to engage my dad or <laughs> about these issues in a different way. Um, so I guess, you know, maintaining robust friendships and particularly family outside of law school is helpful. Um, maintaining a, a network of friends 
uh, and allies outside of law um, is helpful. But I'm a bad person, I guess, ultimately to ask about that because I feel like I'm not always good about keeping those ties alive and well and healthy. It's a real challenge for me. And your question I will take as a call to action, like to, to sort of <laughs> reevaluate sort of where and with who I'm sending, spending time um, and how I can maintain personal integrity over the next two decades as I continue to work in this space. I appreciate that. I I take that as a call to action myself. Well, maybe I do a little too much of going out with people. (laughs) 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 But, you know, now I guess I'll justify that now with this. Yeah, it's for your own health. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much, Professor Shakon. This was an incredible, engaging conversation. We are so grateful that you took, took the time to hold space with us today. Thank you. It was really, it was good to see your beautiful faces and I miss you. And it was really fun to have this conversation. So thanks.